in a manner of speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 48, January 2022. Pitch, a conversation with Jeremy Fisher and Gillianne Kayes. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. Welcome back and Happy New Year. First, my new Zoom masterclass schedule for 2022. In February and March, I'll be teaching five different topics. Each class will consist of four weekly Zoom sessions, 90 minutes each. A complimentary copy of my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen, the deluxe streaming edition, is included. For all the details, look for masterclasses under the Coaching tab on the menu bar at paulmeyer.com. I hope to have the pleasure of your company. One of the five sessions is about unlocking the secrets of great Shakespeare performance, and I'm pleased to say that my newly revised Voicing Shakespeare has just been released as an Apple book, and I'll be giving a free copy to each class participant. If you want a copy, just search iTunes Apple Books for Voicing Shakespeare. Now for our quiz, Guess That Accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Because I'd, I'd never found anything quite like Shakespeare. I've done a few musicals in intermediate school and stuff, as you do. But Shakespeare was like, um, was like what is this? Why, why are the words so strange? What makes the, the words this way? Um, and, and then, of course, the next year we did uh, Romeo and Juliet, in which I managed to name Romeo, which was quite awesome. If you guessed New Zealand, very well done indeed. It was Ideas New Zealand 10, a Maori speaker, recorded by our senior editor David Neville in 2007. Thanks again, David. To listen to New Zealand 10, go to the New Zealand page on IDEA, which you will find indexed on the Australia Oceania page, under the Dialects and Accents tab. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? I remember one time when my mom gave me money to buy um, a piece of cheese, and I went to the store, and uh, the one man usually one man goes and go there and leave the bread for to sell the people. So I saw the bread and it was it was it looks really good. So I was thinking I gonna buy the bread instead of the cheese. Get the answer next time. My guests today are Jeremy Fisher and Gillian Kays. Proprietors of Vocal Process, based in Wales. So welcome back, Jeremy and Julianne. How are you? Good, thank you. It's lovely to be back. We're well, and we're thrilled to be here. Yes. It's uh, been 2019 since we did our first one, episode number 18, I think, on uh, the differences between speaking and singing. Still got a lot of really good comments about that one. Today we're going to talk about pitch. Uh, I guess we should assume uh, that perhaps not everyone knows what pitch is, but so um, uh, the scientist among us, uh, what the heck is pitch? How is it produced? Pitch is regular repetition of a, well, it's just regular repetition, actually. If you uh, hit a ruler on the end of the desk and it vibrates against the desk, you'll hear a pitch. And if you move the ruler away, sort of if you make it shorter or longer, it will change pitch because the vibrations speed up or slow down. But basically, pitch is repetition. It's regular vibrations, and we need oscillation of something that's going to vibrate regularly. Pitch is measured mathematically as frequency, so yep. the number yes. of vibrations you get per second. If you like, it's roughly equivalent to the sort of note that we hear when somebody's speaking or singing. Now I'm sort of on that note. Yes. But when we're talking about pitch, it's much more perceptual. So we get um, much more of a, a complex idea of what pitch is because of the resonance and timbre, as well as the actual frequency itself. Yes, understood. Which makes sense of the little clip you sent me of the clever guy who had taught his piano to speak. Speak, I know. <laughs> I was yeah, fascinated I mean, by that. Should I play a little bit of that? Yes, do. Please. Please. <laughs> 
Okay, what the heck is that? And, and what's its relevance to our topic? The first thing that you can hear, um, whether you can actually make out the words or not, is the prosody, the melody mm. that somebody is speaking in. So it goes up and it goes down. And we use prosody all the time, and we use prosody for meaning, or we use prosody for sense mm. or emotion. Mm. Do you know, I think it's a little bit like if you go on social media sometimes, you um, you have these little tests where whole paragraphs are slightly misspelled. And, you know, the caption always is, oh, only 50% of people can read this. And the thing is, you know, if you are literate, what will happen is you, you'll look at it and you sort of, you kind of compensate for the incorrect syllables and the incorrect spellings, and you make meaning out of what you see. Now, we're doing the same thing with the ear here. Depending on our linguistic base, we are making meaning out of what we hear. And so, obviously, if we have certain syllables that we will identify with those pictures we've heard in a context, mm -hmm. then we start to assign meaning to it. You know, as humans, we're assigning meaning to everything mm -hmm. so that we can cope with the blast of what the world sends us. We're pattern-making creatures, aren't we? Pattern-recognizing creatures. It's for survival. We've got to be able to detect patterns in the, in the world around us for very survival. And we can't process every single datum that's coming at us at 10,000 miles an hour. Right. No, that's right, because that, in fact, would cause us deep mental distress. Um, we, we have to sort of chunk things up, don't we? You know, um, almost we data reduce, I think. Yes. And that's part of what the concept, you know, of that particular clip. It was very clever what they did. They took a recording of a nine-year-old boy speaking several phrases and they analysed it. They did Fourier analyses. Don't ask me because I don't know. Um, and they did cosine analyses, don't ask me because I don't know. Um, and they put it onto a player piano program. And yes. because the, the human voice is capable of microtones, but a piano isn't. Mm. Yeah. So they have to sort of shift the microtones, which is why it doesn't quite sound human, because there aren't microtones in there, there are just semitones. Basically, if you look at a piano keyboard and you have black notes and white notes, those are the only notes you can play on the piano. You can't play anything in between them. And also in speech, we're often using those microtones. We don't hold pitch no. on syllables. Or we'd be, we'd be singing otherwise, yeah, wouldn't we? Absolutely. absolutely. And, you know, we talked about that last time we met, didn't we? We did, we did. So, uh, yeah, human voice, what's the average range of pitch production and the average range of uh, pitch hearing perception? Mm. <laughs> okay. He's looking at me. Um, <laughs> gosh, I'm going to have, you know, we did a training on this the other day, didn't we? <laughs> Isn't it something like down to 20 hertz and up to 23,000? It depends how old you are, yes. how high you can hear. I found this um, program, I won't play it because it's very annoying, that does reproduce pitches from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Mm. And I don't know if it's because of my speakers or whether my age, but I could only start hearing at, at uh, 40 mm -hmm. hertz. Mm -hmm. But I'm still very good on the high end. Mm. And that's, um, that's unusual, Paul, because normally... Um, by the time you're out of teenage, you, you start to lose the very top end of your hearing. I've really got good top end, but um, I'm a little disappointed. I'm not sure if I can hear 20 hertz. Mm. Well, uh, if, we think, um, if you think about a bass bottom C as being about 65 hertz, yes. then we're going down to 20 hertz at sort of at the very bottom end of our um, hearing range. Yeah. yeah. So we can really hear notes lower than the human voice can produce? We can feel them. Feel them. So what you tend to feel, um, and that's a really interesting that one. That is actually, a very interesting because point. Because we were looking up, we were, went down a lot of rabbit holes before we came on, on this podcast. We were looking up the lowest notes that you can sing and the lowest notes yes, that you can yes. hear. And we're going to hear some of those a little later. If you're talking about the lowest notes in opera, you're talking about Mozart. Yes. Uh, wrote uh, the D. If you know your piano and you see a middle C, which is right in the middle of the keyboard, it's two Ds below that. So 
I can. I don't know if I've got one today because That's Osmin, isn't it's Osmin, isn't it? It's Osmin in. I've, uh, I've got Osmin queued up. Should we hear him now? Oh, yes, yes, please. <laughs> So that is the lowest written note in the canon? That's the lowest written note in opera. Yes. Um, then I started to think about it, and there's a lower one in choral music in the Rachmaninoff Vespers, mm. which goes down to the B-flat below that, which in um, numbers is B-flat one. And, and Russian basses are um, known for this ability to develop a sort of real kind of what is it basso profundo oh, yeah. sound yeah, yeah, yeah. um but can i can i just tell a story yes you can i was 16 and my voice had just broken and i was a very low singer and i was booked to sing that low b flat mm-hmm. uh, when i was 16 um wow. so I can't, can't get it now but uh, my voice has shifted up a bit unless you've got a cold right <laughs> unless i've got a cold <laughs> i mean technically i am a bass which means i'm a low voice but mm. um yeah when i get a cold my Voice drops another octave. So, yes, I do. You, you sent me the clip, and I'm going to play it, of, of you with the cold. Uh, it's on I YouTube, everybody. It's yeah. on YouTube, and here is a little bit of Jeremy Fisher with a cold singing incredibly low notes. <laughs> oh. It's all about the bass for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. And I have to say, I, ca- I cannot sing those notes under normal circumstances. I do know people that can, mm. but I can't. Mm. Yes. So, Gillian, uh, are women more attracted to men with deeper voices? <laughs> well, now there is a very, very interesting question. I mean, we should say we are married. Just in case <laughs> the listeners don't realise. Yeah. Personally, I do love a bass sound. It makes me feel very warm and comfortable. Yes, yes. I was looking up some anthropological evidence. There's been some studies on this about uh, throughout the primate uh, species. And uh, apparently, yeah, deepness of the male voice is attractive to the female of the species and um, and respected by the male of the species. So, yeah. Love to hear it. And I would think that the reason would be, I mean, one thing we do know about humans is that um, the more testosterone we have in our um, endocrinal mix, uh, whether we're children or biological females or biological males, then the lower our voice pitch is likely to be. Okay. So it could be all about the testosterone, not about all about yes. the base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that that is something that we do know about the endocrine system and how it impacts on the larynx. There's some evidence that it signals uh, body mass. And so perhaps, you know, the larger male is a better protector. So if, if the voice signals the, the body type, perhaps mm. that plays into it too. Anyway, there's, there's, mm. some, there's some interesting evidence out there. Mm. Um, let's move on to Tim Storms. We're going to play a little bit of his De Profundis that you sent me. But this is incredible. He's credited in the Guinness Book of World Records with the largest pitch range of any human, 10 octaves. Uh, We cannot cannot even hear 10 octaves, right? That's correct. Yep. So what what does it mean when he can sing a G7 at 0.189 hertz when we cannot even start to hear until 20 hertz? I know it's uh, there's a whole two or three octaves that he sings that we can't hear at all. Um, they basically hooked him up to uh, machinery that said that vibration is still there. We can't hear it, but it still exists. Mm-hmm. And he got down to what did you, what was the figure that you gave? The Guinness World Records quotes him as zero point one eight nine hertz, less than two hertz. That's, and that's extraordinary because a hertz is um, a cycle. So it's it's less than point, it's just over 0.1 of a cycle per second. So if you imagine your hands clapping together, 
uh, vocal folds clap together in order to make the sounds. And normally when the note that I'm speaking on is probably about 110, 120 cycles per second, and he's going down to 0.1 of a cycle. So it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, apparently, apparently it's real. I'm sure it was measured on the acoustic analyzer. <laughs> yes. I was looking I'm to... very uh, suspicious, Paul, yeah. as to whether that would have been made with the vocal folds themselves. I would think that that is a powerful subharmonic. Very interesting. Mm. I don't believe that the vocal folds did that, but I, I could be wrong. I mean, if listeners can come with more information about that, we would love to hear it. Yes, please write me at paul at paulmeyer.com if you have information on this. I tried to get hold of Tim Storms and, and the studio in which this happened in Branson, Missouri, just up the road from me, but I was unsuccessful. But yeah, we've got our doubts, guys. So people yeah. dispel, dispel our doubts, please, listeners who know more about this. Tim himself says that it's a full five seconds for the oscillation of that G7. Yeah. Amazing. He won a competition. The St. Petersburg Chamber Choir was looking for uh, a profundo basso, and, uh, and he entered a competition and was cast in the role that results in this piece of music we're now going to play. Paul Miller, De Profundis. Let's listen to Tim Storms. Let your ears be attentive to my voice. In my What is that note? It's an E. Uh, it's E1, um, which I'm happy to say is a tone higher than the one in my recording. <laughs> so that's the... Well, why aren't you in the Guinness Book of World Records yourself? Because you can't... I don't, you can't I don't hold. <laughs> so is that the E below the bass bottom C? Uh, or is it... uh, yes, it is. Uh, yes. yes, it is. Okay, it's, good. It's on the that's piano, right? It is, it is on, the, on piano. the piano, yeah. yeah. Right. But he goes a lot lower than that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He talks about having to, to imagine a second double-sized piano with with strings twice as thick and twice as long in order to imagine the notes that he's hitting. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So let's now talk about women's voices, the female voice, high and low notes. Highest note in the classical canon is it the high A flat in Olympia's doll aria? Okay, this is a really interesting question. The highest note written up until 2016 was Mozart, and that was the G above high C, and it's in a, a concert aria called Popoli di Tessaglia. The A flat that suddenly appeared in the Tales of Hoffman is interpolated. It's not actually in the original music, but lots of sopranos that have got the note and they're starting to put it in. And I think it was 2000. No, I'm not even sure when it was the first one, but I know there was a big splash at the Met mm. in uh, New York because it was the first time that uh, that note had been sung on stage. And it was fabulous singing, I do recall. Really it was good. lovely. It wasn't just, here's my high note. Mm -hmm. But actually, officially now, the highest written note in classical music is A6, which is the A above high C, and that's in an opera by Thomas Adairs called The Exterminating Angel. <laughs> but it's not the highest note that's sung. I can't find it. I've had a look. Um, I actually can't find her singing that note on, on YouTube, which is where wow. I really go. So well, I think it's worth playing the Olympia just to, for people to know what sort of note we're talking about. Yes. So let me do that. Let me do that. Let me play that. There's this wonderful little collection of six sopranos yes. uh, singing that, that little aria. And we'll hear one of them. Six wonderful sopranos singing that that imp very impressive note. That is an actually sung note, isn't it? It's not, it's not a whistle note, is it? 
Well, now, this is very interesting, Paul, because, um, you know, with your very acute ear, you may well listen to those six sopranos and notice that, you know, perhaps the timbre of them is slightly different. We think that there are some voices that do it in more of what we'd call a real voice as opposed to a whistle register, but Mm -hmm. other voices do it in a whistle register. Um, can we, can I think we, the jury's a little bit out on this one. The jury's out on that one. Um, can I just explain to people who don't know about this stuff, the four different types of vocal fold Yes, let's do, let's do that. This is very quickly. There are four different ways that we know of that the vocal folds vibrate, and they're all entirely different, and you can't mix them up. So the first one, the lowest one is creak. And if I talk to you in creak, I'm sure that you would be able to hear the... Yeah. And you can and you can pitch the creek too, can't you? You can pitch the creek, yes. Then there is what's called M1 or modal. So what you'd probably think of as a chest register. Or just an ordinary speaking voice. Mm. Yes. Uh, both of us are speaking in modal. Modal, got it. Then there is falsetto, which tends to be higher up in falsetto. If I was to talk to you in falsetto, then obviously it would sound like that. It's very obvious in the male voice, but less obvious in the female voice. Yes. Interesting. Quite a lot of classical female singers sing in falsetto, uh, but with a lot of power and with a lot of resonance changes. Mm. And male countertenors sing in falsetto. But Uh in the pedagogical sort of community in literature and and singing community, normally we describe the female falsetto as a head voice. Uh And welcome to language confusion. Causes causes <laughs> ma- many a conversation between voiced a uh, singing Ch- voice trainers. Just and head. Okay. By the way, while we're still on this third one, if you want an example of a pop singer who sings in falsetto, Prince singing "Kissed" is almost entirely in falsetto. It's a really, really neat, precise one. Mm. Mm. And then the fourth one, the one at the very top, is whistle. Certainly, there's much more whistle around in pop. Um, and R&B than there is in classical, although occasionally classical sopranos do use it at the very top. Mm. Why am I only now hearing this so late in my life that there's a whistle register? I had no idea. I think it's very popular at the moment, Paul. I think that's why. I mean, obviously, Mariah Carey was one of the first pop singers to sort of um, start using it. And then, of course, what happened was that, you know, within that culture everybody wanted to do it all the girls wanted to do it and guys can do it as well i don't know whether this record still holds but the person with the highest whistle in the guinness book of records is adam lopez Lopez, who went off the piano and there's a live recording on australian television of him doing that yes amazing amazing and um sadly neither of us can do whistle it's something that sometimes disappears as one matures as one gets a little older as you get a bit older right (laughs) yep that's the one um so we're sort of going back to female voice Mm. um highest Oh, I just want to mention, honourable mention to the Eurovision Song Contest. Yes. Uh, which had an entry years ago from Sweden that had a C7, which is an octave above high C. Hmm. Pretty high. So that was C. Uh, then, of course, we've all already mentioned Mariah Carey, who excels in this area. Let's listen to a little bit of, of her, and you tell me what, what you're hearing here. So that's the amazing Mariah Carey. What do you two musicians have to tell us about what you hear? 
Yeah, some of those, some of them are the sympathy audience noise that is very difficult to hear what's going on. Mm. Uh, some of the, because this is on the YouTube um, video and they have the notes that they think she's singing and I'm not hearing some of them. I'm hearing a third lower, which is interesting. But we do know that she goes up to E flat seven easily, G seven easily. So there are a, a number of seven notes and therefore Mariah Carey is on C7, which is the octave higher, and up to G7, she's in E flat seven. Wow. So she's almost off the piano. Almost off the piano. How do you do it? How do you do this whistle thing? The jury is out. We're not absolutely certain how it happens. There are different ideas about it. One of yeah. the problems, Paul, has been that, you know, even when you're looking with um, a scope and you're looking down at the larynx, everything's moving so fast. If you think about, you know, the frequency numbers, that it's actually quite difficult to see what's going on. And they think that um, some singers do it in different ways. So sometimes it's a bit of a gap between the vocal folds in the middle, I think. Mm -hmm. And some people say that it's a gap at the back, which is why we're using the idea of whistle. And also, it's totally impossible to hear a vowel sound. So it really does sound like somebody whistling, you know, from a perceptual point of view. Just to give you some numbers... Um, the G7 that we're talking about that she sings is over 3,000 vibrations of the vocal folds per second, mm, mm. which is incredibly fast. And one thing I notice with every singer who does whistle high, whether they're um, males or females, they open the jaw very, very wide. So it seems like there's a sort of a squeezing that's going on, maybe at the back of the pharynx that assists the production of the whistle note. I'll buy that. And that is all we can tell you. How wonderful that it's still mysterious. Mm, mm, Science has not been able to completely nail this down. All right. I'm going to move on now to Roy Hart. Do you know much about Roy Hart? I've been listening to some of the Roy Hart recordings and some of the interviews that he did, and it's absolutely fascinating. That's an extraordinary voice. Mm -hmm. I worked, um, well, many years ago when I was teaching at the East 15 Acting School with someone who was trained by him. I've worked with a number of people who were trained by him, actually. By Roy Roy Hart? Mm -hmm. By Roy Hart himself, Mm -hmm. yes, because didn't he have a training organisation in Paris for a while? He did. London and then Paris, and then they moved the whole outfit to uh, France. I forgot the name of the town. And the school uh, is still in existence there and in the south of France, I believe. Though Roy Hart tragically died quite young in a, in a car wreck. Mm. Mm. But, but his work continues. Briefly, the story, isn't it? Remind me, if you know more than I do, that Alfred Wolfson was... In, in World War I and was haunted by the screams of dying men on the battlefields of World War I. And those screams haunted him and he was subject to hearing them in a hallucinatory fashion. And he set out to, to exorcise these, these sounds and found himself in, in a, into a kind of music therapy and uh, and wrote songs using those notes, those sounds that he had that he had heard, and he recreated them. And um, and Roy Hart, the South American actor, trained with Alfred Wolfson in London. And when Wolfson died, Roy Hart took over that fascination with these extended vocal techniques. Peter Brook got interested, and Jerzy Grotowski got interested, and and. Uh, we're going to hear a piece of written for Roy Hart in a minute. But what can you add to that story about the origin of this fascination with extended vocal techniques a la Roy Hart? I'd heard that, that the original was uh, like a, to become a cathartic experience. Mm. And when you hear some of the sounds that uh, Roy makes, you absolutely understand why that's the background for it. And some of the practitioners who have um, evolved from Roy Hart's work have gone in that direction so that they, they've really been dealing with the Roy Hart work as a therapeutic tool. And trauma mm-hmm. tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, you know, a few thoughts on this. I mean, one was that we know that there are six emotions that are kind of universally recognised in speech. And these are fear, anger, joy, surprise and disgust. So um, somebody using those techniques would be tapping into that. 
And I think as well, particularly with the story you've said about the Wolfson, which actually I either didn't remember or had never heard, which is that there are other sounds we make, aren't there, that are kind of, neurologically speaking, they're reflexive responses. In other words, we scream mm. out of fear, you know, and if somebody treads on your foot, you don't, that there's, it's instantaneous, ow! And hunger, and also sounds of warning. And those are really tapping into that area of the brain. And maybe the Roy Hart people are using both of those areas. So we've got where we've stored um, emotional memories and where we've got those reflexive responses. I would think, you know, I'm totally hypothesizing here. Mm. From the little bit I know about the brain and vocalizing, I would think that those are the areas that we're looking at. I think what's so, so extraordinary, if you listen to the Roy Hart interviews, is that he will produce these sounds and then carry on talking completely normally. And what you hear is that he is completely technically on top of those sounds. He understands mm, exactly how mm. they're made. And they sound like he's ripping his throat out, and he absolutely isn't. I'm going to have to get one of the Roy Hart School people as a guest on this mm. podcast mm. at some point. Because I need, I need to know a lot more about it. It's fascinating. Let's listen to, to Roy Hart doing this amazing six and a half octave thing. It's on YouTube. Here is a male singer using the voice in a range of six and a half octaves. That's made my day. <laughs> it's spine tingling, isn't it? And it seems, it suggests to me that in the conventional speaking and singing world that we inhabit, we just haven't begun to even imagine the sounds that the human body is capable of. Mm. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And that's because certainly if we're talking about music, you know, we're very much influenced by aesthetic mm. And actually, I think we are in speech. There are all kinds of things that influence the way we maybe think people should speak. You know, there's social constructs. Uh, there's obviously gender constructs. And there are class constructs in certain societies as well. I think when you listen to the sounds like that, the best word I can come up with is, is startling. Mm. They're startling sounds. They're not sounds that you would normally have in a conversation. They are actually emotionally quite worrying to listen to. Well, that takes us back to this thing about sounds that we might use in extremis, mm, you know. Yes, yes. Mm, fascinating. I find it absolutely fascinating how he produces those whistles. Mm -hmm. Beyond my fathoming. Uh, yeah, um, how to increase your singing and speaking range. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think I've told you I sing scales in the shower and uh, in an effort to uh, increase my singing range. And I, when I'm in training, I can actually just kind of squeak out and growl out four octaves. But uh, could I get to six? Could you train me to do six octaves or six and a half like Roy Hart does? <laughs> you mean live on the podcast? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Because you well, told me how to do vibrato last time. <laughs> I was so hoping you weren't going to ask that. And I tell you what, kudos to you, Paul, for the four octaves. Yes. Yeah. That's, um, that's very impressive. Okay, um, I, say, I, can't, I can't say that it's actually singing. It's, it's more growling and squeaking. Yeah, but, uh, sure. but it's you know, they're notes. <laughs> Can I say one thing? It isn't how big it is, it's what you do with it. <laughs> you said well that. That's normally my line. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, you can stretch your range. Um, it's actually easier to stretch it upwards than it is downwards. Yeah. But one of the things that you can do is to go into uh, either subharmonics or if you go into a pitched creak, which is a different type of vocal fold vibration. Mm. 
In fact, vocal folds can vibrate in four different ways that we know of, and they're four entirely different ways. So, Paul, when you were talking about that whistling sound, yep. yeah. that is one pattern of vibration. And, and you can sort of imagine that the vocal folds are very, very thin and stretched, and possibly that they're not even meeting yep. um, all the way along their length. And that's why you get that sort of uh, whistle sound. That's what we think happens there. And you only have to go to somebody like Mariah Carey in the mm. 80s, I think. Mm. She was one of the first people to bring in um, whistle register in pop music mm. a lot mm. and still does. Mm. And there are a lot of people now who go and sing up in that range. And really, you can't do words up there. But, you know, I think people are really pushing the boundaries with, with these things, Paul, because, you know, you can... I read quite a lot of pedagogical texts and voice science texts and so forth. And people do talk about range capability and that everybody has a, a range capability that has, you know, limitations at the top and the bottom end. And then they have capacity, which is what they can do in performance. But I've noticed, you know, when we're listening, particularly to these wonderful a cappella groups, mm. that, I mean, we are hearing phenomenal breakthroughs in range with some people that that perhaps we weren't hearing so often in kind of more main, mainstream pop or mm -hmm. mainstream classical you mm -hmm. know western classical music and i think people are really beginning to push the boundaries and say if i can do it i'll do it you know and then other people hear it and they do it mm -hmm. and so i think it'd be very very interesting to see how things change across the next 10 years I'm going to go with meaning as well, because for me, you know, how impressive that you can sing those high notes or really, really low notes. But the thing is, what does it mean? And I'm actually the same with speaking voice, which is if you can put meaning in it, I'll buy it. If it's a noise, I won't buy it. Right. Yeah. You know, Jeremy, with you, you sort of making the that, that thing about I don't care how big it is, I want to know what you're going to do with it. I think there's a huge amount of... I was going to say range anxiety. People worry very much about, you know, getting their range bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. And obviously, you know, when you look at these um, reality TV programs, they're this range hysteria. Mm. You know, somebody sings a high note and, and everybody goes, yeah, and it's amazing. And you think, mm, okay, cool, yes. great, you can do that. Now, what else do you have to say to me? Uh -huh. Yeah, I love that. Don't want to hear it for half an hour. Thank you. Yes. So yes. I think there's a bit of that going on. And it, actually, it was ever thus, because in opera, what happened when the tenors started producing these really almost kind of yelling top notes, you know, singing their high notes in more of a full chest rather than a falsetto, um, it then became a very competitive area. And, of course, people would go to hear, would the tenor crack? on mm -hmm. that top note. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, so it's, it's there's something about humans quite enjoying that danger, I think. Oh, yeah. I think that was Rossini, by the way, who um, wrote for the um, full tenor voice on high seas. Mm -hmm. um, because I know the first person who did it, there was a review that said he sounded like a strangled capon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> one of my favourite reviews so yes, far. Yes, yes. Now, speaking about strangled capons... <laughs> Um, oh, I'm okay. going to you're going next. I know. Yes. Go <laughs> on, Paul. I'm, I'm going to play this art song written by Peter Maxwell Davies for Roy Hart, Eight Songs from Mad King. I'll say no more and just play it. What it was that of force by a human voice, isn't it? It is fabulous. You can, you can totally hear why Maxwell Davis asked Roy Hart to sing that and why he wrote it for that voice, because you hear all of that extraordinary technique going on. Mm. And the opening of the whole piece is, I, I have no idea what the re uh, reception for that piece would be the first time it was heard, because it's so horrifying. Mm. Is there any precedent for, the, for music of that type? There was a movement at that period at that time but I've never heard anything quite that extreme and that was really during the era of music 
theatre. Yes. As we called it in the UK. Yes. Where it was kind of a movement away, I think, from the voice beautiful and really going back to this idea of using the voice in a theatrical way. And quite a lot of people were writing for voices we should in say that, that way that in, that the, time. In, in the UK, we tend to differentiate, differentiate between musical theatre, which would be your Wicked's and your um, Oklahoma's and Carousel's yes. and Sondheim's, mm. and music theatre, which is a classical-based thing, which is very much about um, extended voice use. Yes. How many octaves am I using when I do this Shakespeare line? We we said we would get into this because I have no I'm no good at identifying pitches in the spoken word, yeah. so I'm going to go very high and very low as, or as low as I can and high as I can. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention! What what am I do actually getting at there? Okay, so your lowest note is B flat one. That one fire. Fire. I love it. <laughs> that was Gillian, by the way, not me. <laughs> it sounded like the exorcist. It's one of my tricks. I'm not quite sure about your highest note, but it actually might be as high as B flat five. It, it felt quite high yeah. to me, yes. Yes. So that's four octaves. That's four octaves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Congratulations, Paul. That was live. What time of the morning is it over there? <laughs> you know, sometimes when I'm coaching an actor, I'll say, W range. And immediately it seems to sound more like acting, like they know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So what is this association with, with range and perceived engagement with meaning? Ooh, can we talk Ooh. extremes? Because yeah, I, think, I think this is important. When you take a voice and you, everybody has a sort of standard speaking range and, and people who haven't trained as actors or voice practitioners tend to speak over, you know, four or five notes, maybe six notes. So you know, that's, that's, that, that's their habitual resting speaking pitch. Yeah, yeah. So if I, if I take my four or five or six notes and I talk around here, then that's my standard range and that's really all I do. Mm. And then if I suddenly go up, it's so out of the ordinary to what I'm normally doing mm. that your response as a human being is to go, something has just happened. What is it? Yes. You're shocked. Yes. Mm. You were, you've been lulled into expecting the same old same-o, yeah. but suddenly you get something out of the ordinary and you pay attention. I'm going to play you a little bit of Billy Connolly, who famously has a wide range. And I think almost anything Billy Connolly says is going to be interesting because, you know, (laughs) I almost went down the shops today. (laughs) Oh, really? Went down to the shops. (laughs) Um, He's amazing. So here's a bit of Billy Connolly uh, showing what he does musically with his stand-up. How does it know which channel? At what time? It goes, I mean, can you imagine your video at home saying, oh, well... Time to switch on and tape the fucking program. <laughs> I don't like the idea of it being in there on its own, going through the drawers and looking at stuff. <laughs> no, call me a sentimental old fool. I don't fucking like it. <laughs> that wouldn't be quite high even for me to speak there. Mm. It yeah. goes up very, very high, doesn't it? And yeah. it, it sounds important. Yes. The, the, that range of pitch makes what you say sound very important. I just think this is really interesting because Billy Connolly obviously is Scottish. And something I've noticed with my own clients is that people who come from a Scottish background or an Irish background or a Welsh background will typically use a bigger pitch range than us people, especially in the south of England. Interesting. yeah. And, you know, the, the guys, for instance, will quite often pop across into more of a falsetto range and come down again, which generally speaking, we don't do so much in the south of England. We're much kind of, you know, more stiff upper lip with our pitch range. It's fascinating, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I think, you know, people's it's it's the, the cultural environment. I recall working with a, a Scottish singing teacher, actually. She was teaching me. This is years ago. And she said that when she went to train at college, they were all taught to narrow their pitch range in speech because it was considered a bit common 
to have a wide, to have that wide Scottish pitch range. Mm. And she learned to narrow it down. Yeah. I mean, that's horrifying when you think about it, but, you know, that's obviously over 50 years ago. Yes. And I'm fond of saying that the average uh, British bloke uh, speaks much higher and with a larger pitch range than the average American bloke. Mm. I might say in, in an English word, you, you, you really want to think a little deeper about that. You really mm. want to think a little bit deeper about that. But the American might say, you, you really ought to think a little deeper about that. You really ought to think a little deeper about that. Cultures have melodies imprinted on them, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, my mm. favourite example of that is Hugh Laurie. If you listen to Hugh Laurie in House mm-hmm. as an American, it's very narrow pitch range and it's low. If you listen to the same actor, Hugh Laurie, in Blackadder, yes. Prince Regent, it's an extraordinarily wide pitch range and a lot of it's very high. Yes, yes. Fascinating. Let's finish up with um, gender-blind casting in opera. I, it occurred to me that, you know, it goes on in theatre. I'm not an opera follower, so I thought Jeremy and Julianne would know if this gender-blind casting happens in opera, which is, as far as I know, hidebound by the, the, you know, the bass, the baritone, the, the mezzo, the soprano. So do we defy those traditional uh, at voices at, at the moment? Ooh. Yeah, we do. We do. But it's actually quite rigid. I think it's going to be interesting to see what pans out with this, Paul. Yes. I think things are changing. I think things will change. I mean, I think there are certain expectations as to how a voice uh, will carry written across an orchestra. So it depends very much on how it's scored. Let's rewind for a moment. Mm. Let's break this down. Because there are um, quite a lot of operas where it is absolutely the done thing to cast a woman as a man. Uh, Mozart was not the first person to do it. And the most famous one is probably Carabino in The Marriage of Figaro which in the character is a teenage boy. The person who sings it is always a female mezzo-soprano. And during the role, Carabino the boy gets dressed up as a girl. So you have a girl dressed as a boy dressed as a girl. And that's quite normal in opera. And then There's there, a lot of those roles. There are all those Baroque roles that would, were originally done by Castrati. I'm, which is exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, I'm thinking of um, Julius Caesar, that role, which yep. would be played by a mezzo, or it could be played by a count tenor. Well, um, when it was first written, was it Julius Caesar? There were several operas, um, Handel and Before, that were written for Castrati, and they were um, pre-pubescent boys that were castrated, uh, normally very highly skilled musical, even at, uh, in music, even at the age of eight or nine, mm. um, so that they would retain their voices but grow into the adult physical form. So they would end up with soprano voices, but with an adult male lung capacity. Mm. And so they would be able to sing incredibly long phrases, very high. The last castrato, Alessandro Moreschi, died in 1902 or something like that. That late. That late. And there is one recording, I think, of him. I listened to it one night when I was in some strange bed and breakfast when I was on tour. (laughs) Scared me to death. (laughs) because it's so unusual it's such an unusual sound can I say a bit more about this I mean Paul you've talked about opera I think um, since I trained as a classical singer it's much much more acceptable now in um, the you know the art song area for female voices to sing a male song cycle Mm -hmm. and vice versa Mm -hmm. And in a way, I mean, it's quite hilarious that it's taken us so long. But because if you think about the canon of um, German poetry, all of the love poems are often written from a biological male point of view, because that's what the culture was. And yet the women sing them. Mm, Good point. Which is fascinating. But I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens with opera, not so much because of the physical casting, but because of the musical writing. So where the music lies, either, you know, whether the um, the part has to be transposed or whether the vocalist is able to sing in those pitch ranges and to carry across the orchestra. I think it's very different from when you're working with a play because I am a big fan of gender-blind casting in plays. Mm. I think it actually can reveal an awful lot about the text that maybe you can't see in other ways. Yes. 
gender blind casting in opera is more tricky because, and it's actually funnily enough, it's not when the singers sing by themselves, because you can sing an aria, you can sing a song and put it in any key that you like that will work for that voice. Mm. The difficulty is the ensembles where you have three or four or five or six people all singing together. And those lines all mesh and they interact and they're set up in a certain way so that, for instance, in Don Giovanni, Don Giovanni is often the lowest person on the line. And I do know of a transgender singer who sang Don Giovanni, and I don't know what they did with uh, with those lines. They may have had to put them up so that it becomes a higher line mm-hmm. in the music. And that there's a purist issue there, which is, is that okay to do and is that not okay to do? And I don't have do, any... You mean to transpose? To transpose, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. It might mess with the ensemble. So here's a question that's just popped into my mind. How would it be if Franco Fagioli sang the role of Fiordiligi? Oh, this is a male soprano. Um, so he has very good high notes. And he the question, sings the high D beautifully, doesn't he? Yes. The question then is um, where does gender blind casting start and where does it finish? So can hmm. you put a male soprano? in a female role. And I don't have an answer to that. Mm. I think it'd be very interesting. I think that would be fascinating. Let's chuck that out there. It's going to be exciting. It's a shame that we're not going to live another hundred years, isn't it? Ah. (laughs) True. This is fascinating. We could go on all day and we, we've really only scratched the surface of the, of the uh, topics that we had lined up. So we're going to have to do this again. Yes. Let's do it again. Thanks for joining me. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guests, Jeremy Fisher and Gillianne Kays. To learn more about them, please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. The fair use sound clips you heard in this podcast, all taken from YouTube, were Eight Songs for a Mad King by Peter Maxwell Davies. Casta Diva by Bellini, sung by Jeremy Fisher. Osmin's aria from Mozart's Abduction. Billy Connolly in performance. The Dahl aria from Tales of Hoffman. Peter Ablinger's computer-driven player piano rendering the voice of Miro Marcus. A Mariah Carey medley. Roy Hart's demonstration of the human voice scaling 6.5 octaves. And... Tim Storms in De Profundis by Paul Milor with the St. Petersburg Chamber Choir. For the links to these specific recordings, see the webpage at paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. My guest next month is Lane Green, author of Talk on the Wild Side and You Are What You Speak, next time on In a Manner of Speaking.